This morning I am uh, in John chapter 6, if you've noticed in your bulletin, and I don't know how many of you even remember that about two years ago I started preaching the book of John, and uh, I think I got through the end of John chapter 6, and we took a bit of a side trip through 1 Samuel into 2 Samuel, and then some other, uh, some other things that we looked at, and I am returning Many of you wondering when, returning to the book of John. And here at the end of John chapter 6, going to pick up in verse 66 to 68. To whom shall we go? Is the question that Peter puts before us this morning. John chapter 6, verses 66 to 68. Hear then the word of God. After this, many of his disciples turned back and they no longer walked with him. And so Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him and he said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and we've come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we have gathered this morning as your people and we have gathered to sit at your feet. And we confess and we know that unless you change hearts this morning, no heart will be changed. And that unless you speak, the words that are spoken are void. That unless you build your house, we who labor, labor in vain. We believe in the Holy Spirit. We believe in your presence in our midst. And we cry out to you this morning, longing for you to speak and for you to work and for you to accomplish your good purposes this morning. For we ask it in the strong name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. We're jumping in at the end of a chapter, and I feel that very strongly. We preached our way through John chapter 6 almost a year ago, two years ago. But it's a rich and powerful chapter. It's full of direct teaching of Jesus. You'll notice it has mostly, if you look at it, the last half of the chapter is mostly red letters. If you've got a red letter Bible, you'll see that it's, it's mostly the direct teaching of Jesus. There's no parables in this section. He, he tells no stories. It's, it's Jesus pretty much giving a sermon, a sermon that's driven really by one powerful, central, and clear metaphor And Jesus is saying that he is the bread of life, the bread of life that has come down from heaven. He likens himself to manna in the Old Testament, the people that he's talking to. The Jews raised this whole issue of Moses and the bread that God sent from heaven. And Jesus likens himself. He says, it wasn't Moses that gave you bread. God gave you bread and God's giving you bread again. And I am the bread of life that he sent down from heaven. You must eat of my flesh. You must drink of my blood if you want to live. And so there's this call that runs through this sermon of Jesus, is this passage, this call to those who are following him to an inward communion with himself. This eating and this drinking of him into the inner life of the soul, this bringing him into the, to the inner depths of who we are, and Jesus inviting them to take him deep into their inner experience. In many ways, it is a challenging and difficult sermon. Right? In some ways, it's challenging because it's abstract. 
He uses this metaphor that runs through the whole thing, that his body and his blood is his spiritual food. And then he likens faith, he compares faith to eating and drinking this food, this truth about who he is. And so this metaphor gets up there a little bit. Jesus is spiritual food and we need to eat and we need to drink. But it's not only abstract, it's a bit extreme. If you look at verse 53, he says, my flesh is true food. My blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks of my blood abides in me and I in him. That's 55 and 56, sorry. Right, so he gives this graphic statement. My flesh is food. My blood is drink. And unless you eat and unless you drink, you will have no life in you. Right? This radical picture of faith, of taking Christ in. He's, not, he's abstract and he's a bit extreme, but he's also exclusive. Jesus is one of the most narrow-minded people that you'll ever meet. Right? When Jesus speaks and he puts it out there, he's very exclusive. Right? The faith and allegiance and submission that he calls for is to the Son of God and the Son of God alone. He draws all attention to himself. He calls and he pulls All eyes to him. He says, give your allegiance to me. Trust in me. Put your faith in me. So in this sermon, he's abstract, he's extreme, and he's exclusive, but he's also audacious because throughout the entire sermon, he's clearly saying that, that the Son of God to whom you must give your faith and whom you must give your allegiance, that's me. I am the Son of God. And you read through that text, you see he calls him, my Father this and my Father that, my Father who has sent me. I have come down from heaven. I've come from my Father. My, my Father gives you the bread of life. I am the bread of life. And so there's this, this audacious claim of Jesus that, that he is the Son of God, that he is the bread of life. That he is the sent one, that he will raise us on the last day. And he's unrelenting because there is this insistent through this whole text. If you go back and read 6, this, this sermon, you will see him unrelentingly calling them to faith. He doesn't ease up. He keeps coming at them. He keeps coming at them. He starts with it in verse 29. He says it again in verse 35. I am the bread of life. Whoever believes in me. And then when he pulls this metaphor out of his pocket in verses 53 and 54 and 56 and 57 and 58, he says, you must eat of me, you must feed on me, you must trust in me, you must believe in me, you must feed on this bread. And he challenges their unbelief at several different points. And so he's audacious and unrelenting in his call to faith, but he's also doctrinal. Right? He says some hard things. If you... Don't remember if you look in verse 44. He says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And if the Father who sent me enables him and draws him, then I will raise him up on the last day. Unless the Father does something first, unless there's this enabling work of the Father, no one is going to come to me. And he says the same thing in verse 65. He comes back to it again here at At the end, just before our text this morning, he says, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. Unless what is granted to him? Faith. Right? He says, this this coming to me, this 
embracing of me, this feeding on me by faith, right? God the Father and God the Holy Spirit must be at work within you if you're going to see Jesus for who he is and embrace Jesus for who he is. It's difficult theology. Any way you look at it, it's difficult theology. Jesus is teaching things here that are a little bit hard to understand and they're a little bit hard to accept. And we know this. It's just not me reading into the text and and making it harder than it really is. We know that it really is hard. Because as, as Jesus makes his statement in verse 65, immediately in verse 66, we're told many of the disciples turned around, they walked away, and they no longer followed him. Right? So it was hard. Right? He said some things. They were offended. It was the last straw in this, in this sermon that Jesus has had with them. Right? Because in verse 41, we're told that they were grumbling. The Jews were grumbling about him. In verse 52, if you look at it, it says, And the Jews were disputing among themselves. They're grumbling and they're disputing. In verse 60, it says, Many of the disciples heard it. They said, This is a hard saying. In verse 64, we're told that a number of them out there don't believe. In verse 66, we're told many of them walked away. So through this entire sermon, there's this grumbling and disputing, and they're, they're finding it hard. This is a hard saying, and a bunch of them aren't believing, and so they're contending, and ultimately they turn and walk away. Some of them just, that's it. We've had enough of this, Jesus. By American evangelical standards, this was not a successful sermon. This is not the response you're looking for on Sunday morning. This is not exactly our bread and butter. It's too abstract. It's too doctrinal, Jesus. It's too hard, Jesus. People didn't like it. It was divisive. It caused them to grumble. It caused them to dispute amongst themselves. And ultimately, it divided the crowd in half. Some left and some stayed. It was divisive. But what we learn, what we find, is that just because something is hard to understand or just because it is difficult and hard to accept doesn't mean it's not true. Jesus said many difficult things. But it doesn't mean it's not true. It doesn't mean that he shouldn't teach it, that he shouldn't tell them. You know, there are churches today that have this whole thing that go on, and you hear now it's a... The mantra that goes on is say, no doctrine but Jesus. You know, no, this is just us and Jesus, no doctrine. There are some churches that actually are founded to attract people and to call people. And part of their tagline, the hook that they throw is, we don't have doctrine. Right? We, we stand, we don't take a stand on a lot of that stuff. We don't want to talk and get into all that divisive stuff. You know, we got no doctrine but Jesus. Well, first thing, let me just tell you, don't you believe them. Because I'll tell you right now, every preacher that gets on that stage, every leadership that's in that church believes some things and does not believe other things, right? They have things that they will totally believe and teach, and there are things that they will not teach. Every Christian has doctrine. Every one of you is a theologian. Every pastor in every church has a theology. The question isn't whether you're a theologian or whether you've got doctrine. The question is whether you're a good theologian or a bad theologian, whether you're a biblical theologian or an unbiblical theologian. Right? Every church has doctrine. There's a local church that their stance literally on their webpage and saying that we're not going to take a stand on these issues. You know, come to our church. We're not going to get into this divisive issue. It's not. And it went that way for years. And just recently on their webpage, they came out and took a radical stand on that issue. 
Because they found they couldn't ignore it. They found it alive in their congregation. They discovered people were reading the Bible and wrestling with the things Jesus said. They're wrestling with the things the Bible said. And they found people in the congregation dealing with the issue. And they finally found they had to come out and take a stand. And it's all over their webpage and and it's a very hardcore. No doctrine but Jesus. We shouldn't be divisive. We shouldn't, we shouldn't be serious about or, or definitive about doctrine. And my thought is somebody should tell that to Jesus. Somebody should have told him that. Because he waded right in. Not just ankle deep. Jesus waded in. Over and over again. I want us to understand that those who left him here at this point, those who left, were never believers. These are not Christians who have turned back. Because we see throughout the text, and even here, especially here, right at the end before they walk away, that part of what they're walking away from is the call to believe in Jesus. Right? And part of what they're walking away from is the fact that Jesus is recognizing and pointing out that some of them do not believe. And why they don't believe. And he's confronting that unbelief. And so some of those who walk away, they're walking away from the call to put their faith in Christ. So many of these early crowds that were following Jesus around, they followed him around and they listened to him and they were watching for miracles. And, you know, there was a big to-do. There were crowds and people were interested. But Jesus clearly says that many in this crowd do not believe. And when he starts teaching, and when he starts saying some things that are hard to understand and hard to accept, the it's like the winnowing fork in the, and it divides the crowd. Thins the crowd. Jesus' doctrine, his claims, his demands separated his followers from the mere tourists. Right? And this happens every day in the church. There are a lot of reasons why people get involved in church. Right, People who are interested in God and people interested in, in spirituality and Christian community. And they want, they want a smattering of that in their lives. And they explore it and they taste it. They like some aspects of Jesus' teaching. But really they haven't confronted the fullness of Jesus' teaching. Because when they come face to face with the biblical Jesus, when they come face to face with his spiritual and extreme and exclusive and audacious and unrelenting claims, his call to a radical faith and surrender to himself to eat and to drink him into the depths of their inner experience in their lives, when they confront the biblical Jesus and the things that he has to say, they drift back into the scenery. You know, as the crowd hears, some of them just, it disperses. They're seen no more. They, they sprout, spring up quickly, and there's green. It seems exciting for a moment as Jesus tells the parable of the soils. It says, but some had no root. When the sun came out, or when trials came, or when things got hard, they drift out of sight. So there's this, I, I don't know about you, as I read this passage again, and I'm reading through John chapter 6 and getting a sense of what's going on as I come to these, Jesus's, Peter's confession here. You know, Peter is, this, is the uh, skeptic and the denier, but Peter is also, again and again, the confessor. You know, and here is one of his great confessions. You remember when um, Peter confesses, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, in the, in the middle of Jesus' ministry. There's a second confession that he gives us. But, 
you look at the context in which this comes out of Peter, and I was reading this text, and I'm trying to give you some of the emotional import of it. I mean, can you feel this, this crowd that's around Jesus? And the 12, you had this group that just left. The group just split in half. I don't know how many left and how many stayed, but after disputing and grumbling and them saying this is hard and, and Jesus telling them you guys aren't believing and here's why you're not believing and them getting upset and some of them turning and walking away. Do you not, can you imagine just how that feels where part of the group just turns and walks away from him and leaves? And the 12 are left standing there looking at him. You know, like, what just happened? You know, what's going down? They're looking at Jesus. You can almost see the smoke clearing. You know, the, the calm after the storm. These guys are left standing there, and Jesus is looking at them. And he holds their eyes, and he asks them this question. Do you want to go away as well? Do you guys want to leave too? I think Jesus knows the answer. But he needs them to know the answer. He needs them to firmly answer this question in their own hearts and in their own minds. Do you want to go away as well? Where is your allegiance? You've heard the grumbling. There's always grumbling. You've heard the disputing. You've heard their mocking and their unbelief. You've heard, you've heard my uncompromising claims. You, you've heard my unrelenting call. You've watched as men have walked away. What are you going to do? You want to leave as well? Or are you staying? Are you with me? Where is your allegiance? Where is your heart? The question comes every day. This is a question. It's not something we answer once at the beginning of our Christian life. I believe that's a question we have to answer every morning. Faith is something, faith is something that lives every day. It's chosen every day. It's not something we do once when we walk an aisle or sign a card or do some kind of pray a prayer. It's a day. Every day I have to get up and say, Am I with him? Right? Is he mine today? Am I going to follow him today? Are you also going to leave? No. Today I follow Jesus. Right? Every morning we must choose. Every doubt that comes in the door, every trial that we face, every pain that we suffer is a chance to say, no, I follow Jesus. I see people walking away. I see the struggles. So Jesus asked this question and Peter And verse 68 gives that classic and beautiful and clear statement of what some have called, in looking at this passage, of what some have called desperate faith. Right? What does Peter say? Lord, to whom shall we go? Where else can we go? Who else is there? You. And you alone have the words of life. We have come to believe and we have come to know that you, you are the Holy One of God. Where else are we going to go? Jesus, we're not going anywhere. There's no one else. You alone have the words of life. As far as your audacious claims, you know, we have come to believe. We know who you are. We know who you are. There are those in the crowd who are unable to see Jesus for who he is. They have eyes to see, they have ears to hear, and they see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. He is the Holy One of God. And they say, 
We're not going anywhere. We don't want to go. But even if they did want to go, say they did want to go, some of these other guys that left, where else would we go? Where would we go? Where else are the words of eternal life? Spent this past weekend backpacking with my son Daniel. We go every year, do a piece of the Appalachian Trail somewhere. This year we were in North Georgia. We did about 25 miles at the very beginning, the beginning or the end of the Appalachian Trail, however you look at it. Covered Springer Mountain and through there. So we're, you got to imagine the two of us hiking in the mountains with our backpacks, a little scrubby and dirty, unshaven, and following each other, single file on the trail, talking as we go. Talking, talking, talking as we go. And like his father before him, my son is a philosophy major at a secular school, at a state school. So you can just imagine the talks we have. He comes home, he's a, he's a middle of his junior year in college as a declared philosophy major. And that's what I studied, that and now theology. And so I'm following him on the trail and we're discussing. You can just imagine us discussing the inadequacies of existentialism and nihilism. And they're just total lack of any moral power or grounding. That they have nothing to stand on. Daniel's taking a class on Eastern religions. And in my, my career, I took classes on Hinduism and Buddhism. A class where I wrote a paper comparing the Quran and the Bible. I spent some time preparing extensively for debate with some Mormons that we had at our school. It came up and we ended up having a public debate with them. And I ended up on the platform, so I studied Mormonism, I spent time. People will try to tell you all religions are the same. I'm here to tell you, no, they are not. They are not even close. They are not the same. There is no one like Jesus. You can look far and wide. There is no one like Jesus. There's no one who says the things that Jesus says. There is no one who offers what Jesus offers. There is no one who was willing to do what Jesus did on the cross. There's no one who says, I came down to do for you what you could not do for yourself, and I will bear your sin in my body on the cross to make you right with God. There's no one else who says, I am the bread of life, and you should feast on me, and you will live. There's no one like Jesus. You can go read it yourself. Go read the Bhagavad Gita. Take a look at the Quran. Go, go take a look out there if you want to. The pearl of great price in the Book of Mormon and their texts. And look at their people. It's not the Buddha. Not Muhammad. There is no one like Jesus. Where else can we go? If you want truth. If you want life. You must come to the Father through the Son. Philosophers go on and on, round and round. And they love the sound of their own voice, but they end nowhere. And there's no moral power. There's no life-giving power. There's no meaning. Religions are trying to create a stairway to heaven. There are those who are now looking to the government, to the almighty bureaucracy to save us and to give meaning to our lives and to lift us up. There are others who are returning to nature and a neo-paganism, looking to find comfort and meaning in a return to, to nature and a veneration of all things natural. There's always the old standby of self-indulgence and sensual pleasure, which will leave you empty and hopeless. To whom 
will we go? I'm telling you, hope is here. Hope is in Christ. There's no word of life anywhere else. I, and I tell you, I've looked, I've read, I have, I've done a lot of that work. And the more I studied and the more I read and the more I looked and the more I listened, the more I believed that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Holy One of God. Only Jesus came down from heaven. There's no satisfaction so deep. There's no joy so lasting. There is no hope so sure as Jesus offers in his own body and blood as he offers himself to us and for us. He invites us to come. He invites us to eat, to drink. And he says, the words I have spoken to you, they are spirit and they are, they are life. When we recognize in Jesus these words of truth and power and life, like you will find nowhere else. We sit at the feet of the master. We pull a Mary. However busy everybody else is all around, we sit at the feet of Jesus. One thing is necessary. Right? One thing is really ultimately beneficial. I need these words. I need the words of life from the mouth of the Master. I need to submit my heart and my mind to the truth as He reveals it. And sure, some things are hard. They're hard to understand. Some of them are hard to accept. But I have come to believe and to know that He is the Holy One of God. And so I submit my heart and my mind to His truth. And if the truth offends me, if the truth offends us, we don't leave. We bow. We submit. We receive. Truth is, sometimes we need to be offended. Truth is, sometimes we need to be humbled and corrected and sometimes even rebuked in our our own thoughts of wisdom and understanding. We need the truth of God and the word of God and the words of Christ to judge and correct and to govern our hearts and our minds. We believe what he says because we believe and know who he is. And we recognize in his words a beauty and an authority and a power that you'll find nowhere else. To the lame, Jesus said, Get up and walk. Men and women were healed. To lepers, Jesus said, be clean. And they were. They were clean. To Lazarus, Jesus said, come forth. And new life flowed into his body. To those who were sitting in darkness, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. To the storm, Jesus said, be still. And a calm settled on the world. To the demons, Jesus said, be silent and come out of him. And men and women were released from bondage into a life of freedom. To sinners, Jesus says, your sins are forgiven and the grace and the mercy of God wash over us. To the lost and to the weary, Jesus said, come to me and I will give rest for your burdened souls. To the hungry, he said, I am the bread of life. And whoever comes to me will not hunger. There is satisfaction. There is satisfaction for the soul. For the deepest needs that you could possibly imagine a human being having. 
having. Right? Jesus says, the words of life. And he says it's only by this radical reception of Christ into our lives, into the inner spaces of our soul where we know him and love him and walk with him. If we eat of his flesh and drink of his blood, as we feast on Christ and who he is and what he has done, the Holy One of God. You know, there is in the awakened and starving and parched soul the burning question, where can I go? To whom shall I go? Let me ask you this morning. To whom do you go? Where do you go? When you're looking for life. When you're looking for hope. Where do you go? Where do you find life? What is it that feeds your soul? Have you come to know? Do you believe that Jesus is the Holy One of God? Have you learned to feast on Him by faith? Have you tasted the power of His Word? Let yourself be driven daily into the arms of the Savior by the overwhelming conviction there is nowhere else to go. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we confess that we go a lot of places. And often your presence is the last place we go. Your word is often the last place we go. I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds, that you would reveal to us how empty and vain is any other source of hope in life. I pray that you would write upon our hearts and our minds again this morning the truth of your words, the truth and the power and the beauty and the revelation that comes to us through you. Would you speak again into our hearts? Would you speak again into our lives? Would you awaken us and give us ears to hear and eyes to see? And would you teach us to go nowhere else? Would you drive us daily into your presence? Would you drive us daily to our knees and to your word? Teach us to feast. Teach us to eat and to drink of the life that you have for us that we might be full, that we might be satisfied, that we might live that life of abundance you promise so freely, so powerfully. We ask it in the strong name of Jesus, our Savior and King. Amen.